Welcome to GeekWire. I'm Todd Bishop. On this special episode, my colleague Mike Lewis talks with U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat who represents the 7th Congressional District in Washington State, which includes Amazon's hometown of Seattle. Representative Jayapal is also the vice chair of the House Antitrust Subcommittee and the author of a bill that aims to prevent monopolistic practices by big tech companies, including Amazon. In addition to antitrust issues, they discuss online privacy, vaccine mandates, and infrastructure spending. Here's GeekWire's Mike Lewis with Representative Pramila Jayapal. If you live in Seattle, uh, you live in Representative Pramila Jayapal's district. And if you live in her district, you're familiar with the largest employer in her district, which is Amazon. Uh, Representative, thank you so much for joining GeekWire in this conversation. So let's get right to it. I know your time is limited. You find yourself in a bit of a dust-up with a state's largest employer, one of the country's largest employers in Amazon. Before we get into the specific of the Monopolies Platform Act, which is your legislation, broadly speaking, how do you see Amazon as both a company and as an employer? Yeah, well, it's great to be with you and great to be with GeekWire. Um, Look, I am really grateful for the innovation that exists in our district Um, And the fact that Amazon was born here and provides many, many good paying jobs to people across the state and across the country. But none of that changes the fact that monopoly power as a whole actually prevents creativity and innovation, the kind of which led to Amazon's creation and led to Seattle and the 7th District being as successful as it is in those areas. The reality is that when you have this kind of concentrated monopoly power and you do not have uh, antitrust regulation of the kind that we are proposing, then what happens is you concentrate all of the power with just a couple of companies, big tech companies, and you disadvantage small businesses, you disadvantage consumers, and equally important, you disadvantage innovation and competition. So that is why as the chair of the Antitrust Subcommittee on Judicial I have been so involved in this 17-month investigation, 16-month investigation that we did over the last two years into the four tech giants and really looking at how that kind of concentrated monopoly power has hurt small businesses and uh, needs to be reined in in order for innovation to thrive, consumer, uh, consumer power to thrive. And uh, honestly, all of the other pieces that go along with that from from good wages to uh, rights on the job. So it's been a it's been a journey for me as I've learned uh, about this. And I will say that, you know, I am very great. I understand that probably, you know, a significant portion of my constituents work for Amazon. This is not at all about the people that work for Amazon, but it is about concentrated power and the government's role in regulating and reining back that concentration so other business, small businesses can thrive and survive. Well, to that end, then, let's talk a little bit about your legislation, the Monopolies Platform Act. I know that there's a lot of focus on, say, issues of conflict of interest. Can you explain a bit about what you mean about conflict of interest and antitrust, specifically as it relates to Amazon and what your legislation would do? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I like to think about this, just so that we don't get too wonky for people who haven't been in, you know, deeply ensconced in antitrust, is it's sort of like when you have two teams on a field 
And the person that is the referee, the person that sets the rules for the game, the person that calls all of the plays, um, and the person that happens to play on one of the teams, everybody would say, wow, that's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's what conflict of interest in the antitrust world means with these tech companies. We'll take the example of Amazon. Amazon is a marketplace They um, control the marketplace. They set the rules of the game for the marketplace. If you want to sell on Amazon's marketplace, you have to follow those rules. They then collect all of the data on every seller that sells on the marketplace, and then they produce their own private label goods to compete with those that are on the marketplace. All of that means that um, a small business has really an extremely unfair situation where they're not playing by the same rules, all of their data is being taken. And what we've seen over and over again is small businesses that have either, that we call it the copy, kill, acquire model, either they get copied, their products get copied and they get pushed out of the marketplace with a much lower price offered by Amazon, um, because of course, Amazon knows exactly what's selling and to whom and how much it costs and how much consumers are willing to pay. So they can undercut and push a seller out of business, or they will acquire the company, which, you know, for some companies, that's great. They acquire it, but it takes away all of the competition. Um, And many uh, sellers that we talked to actually were pressured into selling, uh, even though they didn't want to, because they didn't have any other good options. Or third, the company gets killed. That's the third option that these big tech platforms use, copy, acquire, or kill all of the competition. And so that is what happens over and over again. And one of the things that has been really interesting is to listen to all of the small businesses that testified over the course of 16 months to the Judiciary Committee, some anonymously because they were so afraid of what would happen if they uh, put their name out there. But they have really been subjected to Um, And and not just with Amazon, by the way, also with uh, Facebook and with Google, they have been pushed into buying services that the uh, that the big tech company controls in order to get other benefits on the platform. And so um, it's it's really been a big issue. And we heard about it over and over again. And this suite of bills is designed to address that. My bill says you can't have that kind of conflict of interest. You can't own and operate the platform and then also uh, participate on the platform. That is a conflict of interest. In the financial world, um, we call that, you know, that would be prohibited through the Glass-Steagall Act. You wouldn't be able to buy and sell on the same platform. And that, of course, is what Google does with ad revenue. They control the ad marketplace, um, they sell on it and they buy on it. So that is a that is a huge problem, and of course, it's had enormous impact on our um, on our local private uh, news media, free press sources as well. So, what is the practical application then if they can't own the platform and do the do a similar or parallel business? I mean, is it essentially the idea is to break Amazon into at least two, if not more, companies? Well, if Amazon um, or any other tech company didn't comply and had a conflict of interest, then yes, you would have to separate them. Now, there are other things that could happen in the process. They could, they could, uh, you know, essentially spin off a, a 
company, the ownership would have to be different. You couldn't just spin it off and call it something else. But there are lots of things that could happen along the way. But if they still refuse to comply, then yes, the um, solution would be to break up the company and to make sure that there is a structural separation between the buy and the sell side, if you will. Well, so this has got to be interesting to the new Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy, took over after Amazon founder Jeff Bezos stepped away from being CEO. He's still on, obviously, he's still on the board. Andy Jassy is now in charge of the company. This legislation is sitting out there and other bills are sitting out there that I'm sure he is taking a keen interest in. Have you met with Andy Jassy? And do you see any possibility of new leadership there opening the door to some form of dialogue? Well, I certainly hope so. I think that would be fantastic. Um, I have not met with him yet, but I would be happy to meet with him. I was happy to meet with Amazon before. Uh, That was not something they sought out. Uh, I think we had an early meeting that didn't go particularly well. But um, I think that the reality is that the tech companies that understand that this regulation is coming, and by the way, it's not just in Washington, D.C. This is happening around the world, in the European Union and other parts of the world, the same kinds of regulations are coming into play. So just like Microsoft, you know, we have this history here in in Seattle, as I know you know, uh, Microsoft had to go through this as well. I mean, Microsoft was the subject of antitrust legislation in the settlement. uh, They agreed to, uh, you know, essentially um, not do certain activities that they were doing before. And Brad Smith will tell you that if they hadn't done that, that probably would not have created the room for some of these other companies, Google, uh, Amazon, et cetera, to be created. He uh, has taken a very different approach with Microsoft where they are trying to build in protections against these conflicts of interest, even as they introduce their new software. Um, You may have seen his memo to shareholders that came out recently with the uh, launch of their, their new operating system. And they are actually trying to build in protections so that they would not be in violation of the kinds of things that we are putting forward in these bills. That's what I hope Amazon does as well, become a responsible employer that is interested in protecting the innovation and creativity that allowed them to be born. Let's make sure we can continue to do that and protect consumer rights along the way. Well, thank you, because that's a perfect toss to my next question, which was before he left, uh, Jeff Bezos famously added to the list of leadership principles, and among them being the planet's uh, best employer and safest employer. Uh, They also uh, very quietly and quickly discarded the long-term practice of forced arbitration with customer disputes. Do you feel like these are in any way mitigating acts that maybe would make Congress, maybe maybe make people who are interested in this sort of legislation turn down the rheostat a little bit? Or do you feel like these are not necessarily going far enough for Amazon to be, I think, what you would characterize as maybe a better corporate citizen? Well, they're definitely not going far enough, but that doesn't mean they're not good steps. I mean, I think that they are important steps. I think Amazon is starting to realize that they need to be a responsible employer, that there is going to be regulation, and that instead of acting like government is the big bad guy that's out there to get them, how about working with government? How about actually trying to be responsible before government has to weigh in? Um, There are many, many issues that we are concerned about uh, with Amazon. And I think all of them relate back in some way or, or shape or form to the fact that they have too much power. 
you know, there is a real effect on workers' rights, on wages, on the way that employees treat uh, employ, uh, employers treat employees when they have this kind of concentrated power. They are such a huge force and they could be, uh, you know, doing much, much more. So I don't think it's necessarily going to stop us from doing the regulation, but hopefully it's a sign that perhaps uh, Amazon is growing up a little bit, ready to be uh, more of an adult in the room in how they engage with government. Particularly to the to the Monopoly Platform Act, what do you expect yeah. the trajectory? And is the White House supportive? They are supportive, actually. And you might have seen that they we didn't talk about this, but you know they appointed some of our best uh, people that we were pushing: Lena Khan, Bharat Ramamurthy, uh, many Tim Wu, many Tim others. Wu. Um, yeah. And and even uh, the Attorney General for Antitrust, great choice. We're excited about him. So the uh, so it's looking very good. The trajectory will be that the Senate will introduce um, the same House bills, uh, ideally with with bipartisan co sponsorship again. And then we will try to move the bills through the House as quickly as we can. Obviously, we're focused on reconciliation now. But my hope is that within the next three to six months, we could move those bills through the House. We offered Amazon an opportunity to comment, and the company referred us to a June statement by Brian Huseman, Amazon's vice president of public policy, on Jayapal's bill and others in the House addressing competition issues for tech marketplaces. In essence, Amazon contends that the bills would have significant negative effects for businesses, making it tougher for them to reach and market to Amazon customers and make a living via its marketplace. The company contends that the bills would also reduce price competition and probably increase prices for consumers. Amazon called on Congress to slow down and, quote, thoroughly vet the language in the bills for unintended negative consequences. Coming up, why these tech bills are a rare example of bipartisan consensus. Let's just talk more broadly about big tech. Your Senate colleague, who you've worked with, uh, Amy Klobuchar, she is pushing legislation that would uh, ratchet up privacy standards, of which there's not a whole lot of consistency uh, in the United States. Do you feel like that is a primary issue also when you're referring to big tech first? And secondly, do you feel like her legislation or some other form of legislation has ha- has legs in the House of Representatives as well as uh, in the Senate? Well, we're working very closely with Senator Klobuchar. In fact, I just talked to her uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're constantly coordinating our bills in the House that we passed in the judiciary package will be introduced in the Senate um, with Senate sponsors, co-sponsors. Uh, and so, you know, with, this is all a, a joint effort. The privacy pieces fall under the FCC. So that actually doesn't fall under, while it's extremely important, it doesn't fall under our judiciary um, purview. It falls under actually energy and commerce. So it's it's slightly different, but I'm very supportive of, uh, of, of all of those things. I've been working very hard on privacy in general and civil liberties and uh, even more broadly. Um, so I certainly think that is important. Uh, look, I think all of these bills have legs. Let me just remind any, anybody who's listening that in a very partisan environment in Congress, these uh, package of bills that we passed in the House Antitrust Subcommittee and the Judiciary Committee passed with bipartisan support bipartisan support, every single one of these bills, including my structural separation bill. So there is a real understanding 
on how the monopoly power, in immense monopoly power of these uh, big tech companies is leading to essentially an irresistible urge to um, abuse that power uh, and to you know really suppress innovation and small businesses from thriving. Let's move slightly into other legislation that you have been pushing. One that I haven't heard anything about recently, but you, but it was uh, became a big deal for a period of time a couple of months ago, and that's the likelihood that the United States is going to put billions of dollars into worldwide vaccination distribution. What's the status of that right now, and do you see that as a likelihood? Yeah, this is really, really important to me. I worked on public health issues for 10 years before doing immigrant rights issues, before coming to Congress. Um, and and uh, of course, I have family. My parents live in India, and I happened to be there right at the surge of the Delta virus back in the spring when my parents actually contracted COVID. Um, and so I have been absolutely laser focused on this. My belief is that the easy, now we've done a couple of things already, you know, the progressive caucus, which I chair uh, worked with the president and the administration to, to get the president to endorse the trips waiver, which allows pharmaceutical companies to share their technology with other countries so that vaccines could be produced in other parts of the world. Unfortunately, uh, not all of the European allies are supporting this. And so that has been held up. It has to be approved by the, by the EU uh, countries as well, because it's part of the WTO. So that is one piece we were able to get the administration to agree to, but it still hasn't gone through. Second piece I was able to get into the appropriations bill is this very wonky thing called special drawing rights, which basically allows the IMF to issue uh, ways for countries, both rich and, and poor, um, to access money that is cost-free. And so 60% of that money goes to lower-income countries, 40% goes to wealthier countries. I was able to get a trillion dollars of special drawing rights for poorer countries to use for COVID and public health uh, issues. So that still has to, we got it into the House Appropriations Bill, we have to pass it through the Senate. But the most important thing in my mind and the quickest way to address COVID and the surge of Delta across the world is for the United States to invest $35 billion into domestic manufacturing of vaccines. Then we take those vaccines and we ship them off to the rest of the world. That domestic production can actually be started up with an amount that is as small as $3 billion. Um, we just need to actually allow for that domestic manufacturing to be pushed forward. So I've been working with the White House and with my colleagues in Congress. We've introduced legislation, but we're also pushing to see where we can get this money and the push to actually manufacture the vaccines and get them out. Because listen, unless we address this issue across the world and get vaccines into the arms of people in countries that simply don't have the vaccines, we are never going to solve the problem here at home. One quick question then about, let's focus on Washington state. Are you supportive of the idea of vaccine mandates? I, I am supportive of that and I'll tell you why. Um, we have done everything that we possibly can to incentivize people to get vaccines. Unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there. I'm not talking about the people who can't get vaccines because of their compromised uh, immune status. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, people who just haven't gotten a day off of work and so can't get to a, a place to get a vaccine. I'm talking about people that are willfully spreading misinformation about vaccines. Um, and I really believe that this is not a situation where 
my vaccine just protects me. There are many vaccines that are like that in public health, actually. I mean, there are many vaccines that you get to protect yourself, but they don't really have an effect on anybody else. That is not the case with the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine is about protecting yourself, but it's actually about protecting everybody around you because the more people that are unvaccinated, the more the virus has the ability to transmute into more and more dangerous uh, you know, variants and to kill more and more people. So unless we achieve vaccination status at a certain threshold, we are going to continue to deal with this and see more and more deaths of people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated because the virus will continue to change and transmute. So I believe that it's time to just say to people, this is not just about you. This is about all of us. And um, I do think that if you're going to go to a workplace uh, with people, then you should be then you should be vaccinated. If you're going to go to a, a, a sports arena, you should be vaccinated. If you're going to go into a restaurant, if you just want to stay at home by yourself, that's one thing. But if you intend to engage with the rest of the world, if you want to go to a grocery store, you should be vaccinated. When we talk about what you had mentioned about worldwide distribution, do you see the problems as mostly existing in logistical distribution or do you see the problems existing in actual manufacturing or both? It's really both. And it depends on which country you're talking about. So I'll give you two examples of countries where if they had the, the technology and the licensing, they could manufacture. That's India and South Africa. Both have the technological capability to manufacture vaccines and then to be a hub for other parts of the world, India for South Asia and Asia more generally, and uh, South Africa for, for the African continent. Um, but there are other countries, including in Latin America, including in some parts of Asia and Africa, uh, where they simply don't have the public health infrastructure to get the shots into people's arms. And so when I've spoken to Ron Klain in the White House about this, um, we have talked about the need to not only make sure that we're shipping vaccines over, but to get end-to-end -end distribution. So how do you get the vaccines not only to the country and to the public health uh, department, but then help the public health department to get them into people's arms? So it really depends on which country we're talking about. And um, a, a country like India has a very strong public health network. If we just got the vaccines to them, they would be able to distribute them. That is not the case in many other countries. Okay, final question, Representative Jayapal. And thank you again for joining us here at GeekWire. What should be at the top of Washington's wish list when it comes to infrastructure from the federal government, infrastructure funding from the federal government? Well, it depends on how you define infrastructure. I just have to start with that because Fair I enough. think about infrastructure as being not only roads and bridges, but everything that you need to get on the road. That means childcare. That means community college so that people can get training. Um, so to me, it's all one big picture. But in terms of physical, hard infrastructure, uh, what I believe is that we have to address um, all of the pieces of uh, infrastructure that have that have crumbled underneath us. That is not just roads and bridges. It is also our our lead water pipes. You know, we need to get drinking water clean. We need to make sure that we are investing in green energy solutions, including electric vehicles, transit, all of the things that allow us to take on climate change at the same time. And then on the other pieces of infrastructure, 
our priorities are around the care economy, making sure we get childcare, paid leave, making sure that we uh, allow people to get the training so they can get into these infrastructure jobs by having free community college. And then of course, addressing the healthcare needs and taking care of our essential workers. Last one that's important for our region and across the country is housing infrastructure. We should be building green, uh, affordable housing across this country, taking care of the backlogs that exist in repairing housing, public housing projects and school infrastructure. So I consider all of that to be part of what we're doing in this Build Back Better package that we are going to deliver to the president with the reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better reconciliation bill and the other uh, much, much smaller uh, infrastructure bill that the Senate already passed. Representative Jayapal, thank you very much for joining GeekWire this morning. Great to be with you. That is U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal speaking with GeekWire's Mike Lewis. See geekwire.com for full coverage of the conversation. Thank you for listening. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. We'll be back this weekend with our regular weekly news roundup. Until then, I'm Todd Bishop. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.